0: Hey everyone, I'm your host, Katie Friesen. And today I come to you with the last episode in our six part mini series on an introduction to microeconomics the five geniuses that you've never heard of, with Mr. Robert Hacker. Now, if you don't know who Robert Hacker is, you can find his bio on our previous podcast, the previous five. Um, Quite impressive, uh, quite impressive man, very intelligent, very wise, and insightful. So you can find the five other podcasts where we talked about Herbert Simon, Brian Arthur, Claude Shannon, Eleanor Ostrom, um, and kind of a, a general introduction miniseries. Uh, you can find those on the Anchor app. Uh, the podcast is called Socratic. So without further ado, today we talked about Friedrich Hayek and his contributions to economic theory. Um again this is the the final podcast of the mini series and I hope you enjoyed them. I know I found this this mini series to be super insightful and I learned a lot um in terms of all the geniuses that kind of help shape economics um with their thinking some great thinkers. So without more I I hope you enjoy this conversation.
1: All right. I guess we'll hop into Hayek. We shall. As per usual, uh, let's start out with Hayek's background in history.
2: Okay. So Hayek by birth was an Austrian and he actually got two PhDs in Europe, one in law and another one in political science. So by measurement of education, he was quite well educated. Um, What's interesting about his early development is that the Vienna Circle, which was a very prominent intellectual group um, in Europe, had little or no influence that I can see on Hayek, all right? Hmm. And, you know, th- this is the group that influenced Wittgenstein and influenced Carnap and influenced a lot of very famous. Uh, renowned thinkers of that, that period. Hayek seems not to have been touched by it. So I, that's interesting to me. Um, he he left Europe, or he left Austria to go to England, and he was at London School of Economics as a professor for quite quite a long time. Then he came to the States, and he was at the university of chicago and of course he was part of the sort of legendary string of nobel prize winners at the university of chicago you know along with friedman and all the people we've talked about on this on this series of podcasts and he won his nobel prize in 1974.
1: Hmm. um and what do you think led to his discovery
2: I think that if if you were to break down his contribution to thinking and economics, I would say that there's three points that are the most noteworthy. All right. One is this notion that prices capture information of market participants. All right. And that sounds to me amazingly like information theory, okay? But interesting, he was critiqued for his notion of price as not being consistent with information theory. But I've, I, I'm, I'm bothered by, by this reaction, okay? And when I thought about it, I think the information theorists might be wrong. Okay, and the reason I say that is if I ask you what is an apple, all right, or any example of matter, all right, what an apple is, is an apple is hunger insurance, Mm -hmm. okay? You will not go hungry because that apple has the information to satisfy your hunger, Okay. I don't see any difference between the apple in that context and the notion that the price captures all of this information related to supply and demand and input and output and equilibriums and all of that. Hmm. It's no different than the apple.
1: What was the critiques of the information-like theorists? What was their argument?
2: it was It was basically a critique of the notion that price captures all the information
1: and they okay. they thought it was imperfect information, well, I guess all information is imperfect, but they were saying that it,
2: it, it was simplistic it was simplistic that we we couldn't possibly capture such a complex um, process merely in the notion of price and I think there's no difference between price and the apple. Okay. And so I've always, I've actually always thought that that Hayek was, was probably should get the credit Mm -hmm. for being the first one to apply information theory to economics. Okay. And you know, he he as you as you pointed out in some of our correspondence he also is very very comfortable in the in the scenario of what you and i would call complexity hmm. so i think that again he was you know he was on the verge of complexity science and economics long before it got any uptake in the economics world hmm. and it's this notion of independent agents, okay, which is his second major point or second major theme. These independent agents are, you know, theoretically empowered, okay, and they behave to adapt to the environment. They behave to satisfy self-interest, otherwise known as to survive, and they have you know self-organizing abilities, right That's how you create markets. And so I think that I think that in many ways Hayek was was perfectly consistent with complexity economics.
3: Hmm.
2: I've, I've looked, but I can't find any links between Brian Arthur and Hayek
3: hmm.
2: all right although I'd have to think that a professor of economics at Stanford must have read Hayek, oh, cool. although Hayek one of the most un- interesting things about Hayek is he—he he was always out of favor throughout his entire career, and if it wasn't for the power of the insights, he would have been totally forgotten.
1: Why? Why was he out of favor out of his whole career, pretty much?
2: Be, be, because he wasn't—he wasn't embracing sort of macroeconomics and money supply. And the Keynesian view of the economy. I mean, he was the antithesis mm-hmm. of Keynes. Which brings us to the third point that is so important in considering Hayek, and it's the it's the role of government. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, uh, Hayek saw the government as essentially responsible to create the minimum environment which allows people to individually exercise their initiative to participate in the economy. Okay, so it was a very minimalist role. And he was he was troubled by this whole Keynesian notion of adjusting the money supply. And he, he, he might be one of the first people to have written about Um, economic cycles because of that right Hmm. that if the government didn't intervene the cycles would not be so um, significant Hmm. it's like uh, natural natural markets wouldn't allow
3: that
1: yeah when uh, I was kind of researching the point right now I was reading Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb and the the thing that I thought of was Anti-Fragile right I guess that was the concept that came to my mind. Where essentially, if you take out all the little volatility in the market, it effectively makes the whole thing far more unstable. Um, so I just thought that was an interesting connection as I was researching for this podcast.
2: Yeah, you're you're getting quite good at putting together these, uh, <laughs> you know, really eminent thinkers from, you know, al- almost unrelated spaces and and seeing parallels. I see. I think that's the that's one of the characteristics of people whose thinking has, has evolved mm-hmm. to a, to a higher level. And so, you know, it's very, it's very nice to see this happening mm-hmm. with your development since I've been involved in it for what the last two or three years, mm-hmm. at least as an observer. Mm-hmm. So that's very cool. That's well, very cool.
0: Well,
1: thank you. Uh, I think um, just on a side note, I think that's what I'm trying to get to is to find the, again, the fundamentals and the principles that essentially kind of can explain everything or the frameworks that are most helpful and useful. Um, And I think that's why I like subscribing to Hacker Nation um, because I found that that's where I find the information that's most relevant across so many disciplines. Um, So my two cents there.
2: That's that's an interesting observation i had not I had not thought about us as a sort of a source of multidisciplinary approaches, but you know now that you say it, I could see how somebody might might come to that conclusion um,
1: I had a quick um question about what you had mentioned. You said that Hayek said that the government should be there to to Essentially, provide the minimum um, and then the markets to take over. What exactly is the minimum, um, in your opinion?
2: I I think that Hayek would have answered uh, for the smooth and efficient functioning of markets. All right. Or he would have answered the minimum required for the individual to be able to exercise his empowerment.
1: And, like, what is that minimum? Like a free market? What what exactly is a minimum?
2: I think it's more I think it's more of a of a legal framework than it is an economics, macroeconomics kind of a framework. All right. He wants legislation to create a fair playing field. Period. Okay, No Medicare, no Social Security, no adjust the money supply to stimulate the economy. All right. There's probably no government research. One of the most interesting things about Hayek is that, you know, he was he really, really reduced the scope of government. Mm -hmm. But he believed that there should be uh, elementary school education but only up to 11. All right. After 11 years old, the, the, the state should not, should not pay for it. And of course, 11 years old is one of the, uh, major points in the development of the brain. Hmm. All right. In fact, most of your brain is formed by the time you're 11. And then, you know, there's a little touch up phase around 18 and 25, but it's, 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 it's not nearly as, you know, meaningful as zero to 11. And so I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's why he's, he's saying up to 11. Okay.
1: Would you agree with that?
2: Well, I agree with the importance of 11. Okay. I really do. Um, Gives me pause is the complexity of the technology in the world we live in. All right, I was reading an article this weekend that was really, really fascinating, and the and the author was basically making the point that the technology is so complicated, most government officials can't understand the technology and the consequences. Therefore. The government officials have to rely on experts, you know, much more than they ever did in the past.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And of course, that's risky because experts can have, you know, points of view. And um, so, when you when you think about that, what that says to me is that we have to teach a lot more science and math and statistics to our children. Okay, so that they at least can understand the issues and we don't have to rely on experts to tell the government completely what to do. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you're going to get to that point. Just educating between say three and 11. Mm -hmm. I I do believe that there's a trend coming whereby all of education is going to shift down. So the first two years of university at FIU are going to become high school
3: mm-hmm. and
2: high school is going to become junior high school and you know junior high school becomes the last two years of elementary and I think that's I think that's a trend that you're seeing like in prep schools in the United States where the kids get to be juniors and seniors at these prep schools and they're taking university courses right? Even though they're still in high school. And, you know, there are programs in the public schools that allow you to do similar things, but I think it's going to get a lot more common. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, What would you teach? What would be the fundamental topics? You said math, science, um, and physics. What what would be other subjects that you would teach in high school? I I would, I
2: would, I would start with the three fundamental subjects math physics and philosophy and I would I would teach them much younger mm-hmm. all right and uh, you know so, somebody somebody once asked me you know what did I think was the most important discipline in entrepreneurship and I said leadership mm-hmm. and the man who had gone to harvard business school and had founded the largest private school in mexico he then asked me so how would you teach leadership in kindergarten hmm. right well if you if you bring your thought to it you you can you you can start complex subjects at that at that young age i remember once teaching design thinking to second graders <laughs> And design thinking is actually not so hard to teach to second graders because in many ways it follows the natural, almost like process of how we learn, okay? But the issue that's really complex and really challenging is how do you teach eight-year-olds to reframe or to frame the problem in a new way? That's, That's what makes it challenging. All right. But again, it's one of these situations where if we admitted we wanted to teach design thinking to eight year olds, I think, you know, we could come up with a pretty good way to do it. Hmm. Hmm. That's, of course, assuming that the school district even knows what design thinking is and realizes that it's such a great tool that maybe we should teach it to second graders.
1: Yeah, Big, big assumption there. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, you might not have to teach empathy if you taught design thinking they'd learn empathy in in the first step of design thinking you know and maybe the last day of class we could tell them that the first step is
3: empathy you know
1: interesting um taking it back to Hayek and then the concept of pricing being information um yeah. kind of while you're talking about that the thought that popped into my head um, was going back to Eleanor Ostrom and the governing of the commons. How would you kind of reconcile those two um, in terms of if you don't have information in terms of what people need? Yeah, how do you reconcile those two systems?
2: Well, Eleanor Ostrom publicly identified with the Austrian School of Economics, hmm. which is the the school of economics that Hayek is associated with, along with von Mises and uh, Israel Kirzner, who's a very famous academic writer on entrepreneurship. And I think that what was the term that we used, whereby you're not top down, but you're 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 bottom up, and you recognize that individuals are nodes. I think it's hyper hyper something I don't remember what we called it I could probably look it up but that that notion of the individual having the 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 liberty to exercise his judgment and accepting the fact that individuals behaving that way are going to produce good results that's pure that's pure Hayek that's pure you know John Locke All right, that's pure Thomas Hobbes.
1: I see with the notion that just whatever people's decisions are the decisions and whatever markets created out of that, that is the decision of the masses.
2: Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And that you get the best decisions by preserving, call it, the integrity of the individual. Mm -hmm. You don't get the best decisions, according to Ostrom, by having a top-down government dictate. Hmm. One of my favorite quotes or, or paraphrases from Hayek is to ask the question, why do you think that government can think through a problem better than you can think it through as an individual?
3: Hmm.
2: All right? And I think it's it's incredibly insightful in the simplicity of the question. Hmm. And I think Eleanor Ostrom probably had that you know, tattooed on the wall of her office. All right. Because she was almost as big an advocate for that philosophy as Hayek. And so, you know, it's kind of it's kind of cool.
1: Uh so I guess the difference between modern day, I guess, communism or socialism and and Eleanor Ostrom's governing of the commons is that essentially it's still a system that is not is not dictated top down Therefore, you can still know the information in the system, where in a communistic or socialistic, there is no information, essentially, or the information is skewed. That's a correct assumption? Yeah,
2: that's correct. That's a very good characterization. Hmm. It's a very good characterization.
1: In in terms of, I guess, socialism and, and communism, is that what you think the main fundamental problem is with it? Is just the fact that the information is wrong because it is not I guess there's no market to price because the government is essentially dictating the market?
3: Yeah.
2: Yes. Exactly. The problem is you don't have the benefit of the individual and you don't have the benefit of a network of individuals, right? All evaluating information and acting. That's Mm -hmm. right.
1: So, So then do you think that universal basic income could work to some extent because it's kind of like communism socialism except people still retain their purchasing power to some extent
2: well i i think the issue and and this is actually a point that will get us back to hayek all right is warren buffett has a very interesting observation on universal income and he says people have to be motivated to receive their universal income all right if you just give them the money that will not do anything to to essentially empower the individual or to to trigger that which empowers the individual Mm -hmm. so we have to reconcile motivation and benefits with the need for universal income so not opposed to universal income but let's recognize motivation and benefits. And the reason that that brings us back to Hayek is that much as Herbert Simon spent the latter part of his career as the chairman of the psychology department at Carnegie Mellon, Mm -hmm. with his Nobel Prize in economics, he was the chairman of the psychology department.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, Hayek also spent the entire You know end of his career doing a lot more writing and thinking about psychology than what would conventionally be called economics and what is going on here is that both of these you know genius like men were anticipating behavioral economics Hmm. okay (laughs) and I, i i just think it's very very interesting that two so-accomplished economists ended up in in psychology. Where, of course, you have to deal with the motivations and the benefits that that people receive or don't receive in return for certain action.
1: Hmm. Right? Yeah. I guess the way I see it, or what my mind jumps to, is that um, you're just going even more micro. Right? You're just going... Past the the human action, you're going even more micro to the human behavior.
2: Which is what complexity teaches us. Hmm. Right? In most cases, there's yet again another system that was put together to create this system that you observe, right? You know, Katie, one of the things that is interesting about our podcast is that because it was fairly intense, right, one week after another, uh, what I've come to realize is how much my thinking has been influenced by Hayek and Herbert Simon. All right. And I don't think I had totally realized how much they've influenced me. Um, And Hayek, most of his influence is around individual empowerment the role of government okay and herbert simon is around design and i would say they both get credit for complexity or complexity economics and then the notion of information theory i would have to give hayek the credit because in in my in my mind I applied information theory to economics through Hayek before I realized that information theory and economics was a real discipline. Okay, so I have to give Hayek the credit. Hmm.
1: So. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I've two if those are your two favorite geniuses.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I'm very fond of Brian Arthur and you know, when when people sometimes I get critiqued because it seems like I only talk about men, all right. Well, you know, Eleanor Ostrom is one of my favorite thinkers, all right, because she's got such an original approach to such a complicated problem, all right? And she deserves to be much, much more well known. Okay, so I may not have a quantity of women, but I surely have a high quality of women.
1: Well, quality over quantity. So, That's,
2: somebody said that. Somebody said that. Yeah. Um, this sounds remarkably like a, a a summary of what we've just done in our five podcasts.
1: Yeah, I was going to say it all seems like it's tying in together, interconnected or looped in somehow.
2: Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. And: um, It's been a lot of fun to, to do it. All right? it's I don't know if we would call this teaching, but you know, when, when they say that you learn a lot from teaching? Well, this would be a perfect example.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, of course, your your questions are a key part of this. Have yeah. you gotten any calls from CNBC yet?
1: Nope. Or CNN? not Not yet, but I'm not sure if I'd want to work for either of them, so that's okay.
2: All right, all right. Well, if you decide you do, give me a call, and I'll I'll give you a couple of pointers, okay? <laughs> okay.
1: Um, bring it back to Hayek, is there anything else that you would add that we haven't touched on?
2: No, I don't think so. I mean, once we get to the psychology and the behavioral economics Mm -hmm. and his role and Simon's role, I think we pretty much hit the high points. I mean, he was very prolific, an enormous amount of of writing. Um, And if you're going to read one book about Hayek or from Hayek, I would say The Road to Serfdom is the book to read and that's the that's the major thesis around individual empowerment and why government is not as much of a solution as many people think and why communism is not, is not going to succeed he he was definitely writing to put people on notice about the, the problems with communism
1: Because it's, I guess, one
2: thing we didn't talk about is, you know, he had a famous series of of debates with Keynes. Hmm. All right, and they were so polar opposites in their thinking that it was a pretty renowned, you know, series of debates.
3: Um,
2: I found that. a philosopher named Foucault also debated Keynes, hmm. which I think is kind of interesting. Foucault is one of the people that gets credit for the for the saying, uh, "To do the impossible, you have to see the invisible." Hmm. All right, he has a whole, you know, you know, body of thought in philosophy, which I've never appreciated as much as other people do. All right. I do like that quote about do the impossible. So. And he, mm-hmm. he debated with Keynes. And I'm pretty sure he would have been more in the, uh, more in the view of the individual
3: also.
1: Is there any validity, validity or where you think that Keynes has a stronger point than uh, Hayek?
2: Well, this weekend when I was doing some reading in preparation for today, I came across a writer who basically said that Keynes won the Second World War. So, Hayek, you can critique him, but Keynes won the Second World War. So what I guess the conclusion from that is, and the justification for Keynes, is in the most extreme situations, it may be only the government that can put together the resources to ensure the survival but remember that was a statement that was true in 1940 Hmm. okay we're Hmm. now 60 80 years later all right the world is different corporate resources are on a scale that is enormous Hmm. so we, we would have to think about about it
1: why did they say that Keynes won the second world war
2: because he 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 used the the unique features of the government to raise the money yeah. and organize the production that was required to successfully execute a winning strategy.
1: I see. Okay. Yeah, it's like the consolidation of power essentially.
2: Right. I mean, there's a famous there's a famous uh, story about the the military planning for, uh, the second world war. And they had a, a military, you know, think tank unit, oddly enough, it was run by a Lieutenant Colonel, not even a general. All right. And they call them into the white house and they say like in 1937 or something, you, you know, we're anticipating a war. Okay. would you please go away and come back and tell us whether or not we have the production capacity to win a war? Hmm. Okay. Now, the reason that this is such a spectacularly good story is the Lieutenant Colonel realized it was not going to be a one front war just with Germany. His planning assumption was could we win a two front war fighting Japan and Germany simultaneously? And, you know, you would be hard pressed to find an insight in planning that was more dramatic than that insight. But when the point of the story is, of course, that the magnitude of the resources, the magnitude of the planning and the production that was required in the Second World War was enormous and incredibly you know expensive if you will to pay for it. and it was keynes style of government that made that work hmm. so you know pretty good pretty good thinking
1: hmm. interesting interesting. Yeah. Okay. and then the last thing was i think that we uh, we touched on it previous in a previous podcast um <laughs> But I also want to touch right. a little bit on equilibrium and perfect competition, um, and I want to dive a little bit right. deeper into that as well.
2: I think that Hayek's view of equilibrium was um, a view that that equilibrium is is fleeting; that you you don't you you can't use equilibrium as a as a valid model because the the environment is constantly changing as information changes prices actors agents react Mm -hmm. and you move on and that is you know for all intents and purposes fundamental theory and complexity complexity does not have stable environments the way economists think of it Mm -hmm. and i think hayek was with the complexity thinker's at that point not not by by name but by outcome of thinking he was he was thinking like a complexity um, a complexity scientist hmm.
1: so, so then going back to pricing right if the equilibrium there is really no concept of of equilibrium um right so then i guess technically pricing would be almost inaccurate to some extent
2: well i think that the answer is it's very temporal Hmm. right and by the fact that it's so temporal it's it's the antithesis of equilibrium but it has value Hmm. right it explains a state at a point in time. Right. When when Shannon explained entropy, right, he said that it's it's the analysis of the possible states. And the more states, the greater the entropy. All right. And I think that this notion of 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 a price at any point in time is a is a it's a uh, it's a function of the state. Hmm.
1: Understood. So then, the most successful entrepreneurs, you're just looking at what the current state is, essentially. Um, but then, how? Yeah, I guess most successful entrepreneurs. How would you use the principles of complexity? Um, to think about entrepreneurship rather than using the principles of i guess supply and demand
2: well the The first answer is to recognize explore exploit model from complexity that you should be iterating exploring until you have sufficient evidence. To establish that you've got product market fit. Once you have product market fit, then you transition to the other part of complexity, which is exploit. Hmm. And that's where you, you pour in all the money because you know how the customer is looking at your product and the pricing and all of that. And, and you exploit the opportunity.
1: Hmm. Right. Right. I remember that. Okay.
2: Yeah. it's it's a funny concept explore exploit and the reason i say it's funny because it shows up everywhere (laughs) you know if you're if you're if you have a little familiarity with it you should start looking for it right and you'll find it in all kinds of places like you know scientific revolutions and industrial revolutions and entrepreneurship and things
1: like that. It'll be my homework Plus. to uh, my homework to, to find five instances where I see explore and exploit.
2: That's that'd be actually that'd be a good exercise. <laughs> you know you we'll reverse the roles, Katie. I'll I'll do the interview and you can answer <laughs> all right about your five examples of explore and exploit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Sounds good.
2: That might be more fun than we think.
1: <laughs> um well, I think that's
2: you're all the you' you're in charge of programming I'm only in charge of content okay <laughs> so you figure out what where the programming's going
1: yes um, sir um, I think that's all the questions I had today on mr hayek
2: <laughs> well this this was a lot of fun Katie. so if you if you need an endorsement for your podcast um I would have to heartily encourage other people to. To come and be subjected to your really excellent questioning.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks for that. All right. Cool. Be Thanks, well. Mr. Hacker. Bye bye. Bye.
0: And that concludes our six-part mini-series on the five geniuses you've never heard of with Mr. Robert Hacker. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed these podcasts. Uh, there'll be more to come, more mini series to come. Um, and again, you can find the five other podcasts on the Anchor app. The podcast itself is called Socratic. Additionally, you can find Robert Hacker on Twitter. His handle is RHHFLA. <laughs> Make sure to give him a like, a retweet. His content is pretty good. Additionally, you can find Startup FIU on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can find me on Twitter. Uh, it's at Katie Friesen 16, K A T I E F R I E S E N 16. Uh, please don't be shy. I would love to hear your feedback. Um, let me know what you think. If you enjoyed today's episode or previous episodes, feel free to share. Um, lastly, I want to bring up Hacker Nation. Hacker Nation is a group of very intellectually curious individuals, and we meet with Mr. Hacker twice a week once on Wednesday and once on Friday via Zoom. Now, previously it was at Florida International University. But essentially, we talk cover topics ranging from complexity theory, information theory, physics, mathematics, um, just any kind of topics that are fundamental and that kind of will help our thinking and frameworks for decision-making, among other things. So it's a, a great group of very sharp individuals and really great people. So if you're interested... Um, Make sure to follow Hacker Nation on Instagram. Uh, The handle is at Hacker Nation. And DM if you are interested in learning more about Hacker Nation. With that being said, I hope that you have a fantastic week.